Alright, so we are God's church. We are one small part of God's church around the world. Uh, but this story that we're a part of began a long time ago. And um, I'm going to scare some of you with this, but I want to begin this way. God created Adam and Eve. Now don't, don't be afraid. I'm not going to tell you the whole story all the way up to Acts. So I just want to tell you this. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden and given so much freedom. God told them, you can eat of any tree. You can, you can do whatever you want to do. You can enjoy my creation. You can eat of all the trees in the garden except that one. And what did they do? Of course, they ate of the tree they weren't supposed to eat of. They sinned. And uh, then the story that unfolded after sin, we should all be very familiar with. After sin came shame. They realized they were naked. They did their best to clothe themselves, to cover and hide their shame. Shame and then guilt. The guilt of their sin weighed on them as God came to walk with his creation in the garden. They hid themselves. They ran and hid from God. Shame and then guilt. And then the cover-up and the blame game began. Adam, who told you you were naked? Did you sin? Did you eat of the tree? And Adam says, that woman that you gave me, right? And then God says to Eve, Eve, what have you done? And she said, that snake that you put in the garden. And the blame game began. It's not that unfamiliar a story. Um, let me tell you a story about a man named Donnie, very successful businessman. Uh, was just really leading, just um, climbing his way up the corporate ladder, was very successful in life, and uh, all his success, he, he, uh, he decided one night late at work that he was going to um, venture off into some internet sites that he shouldn't go. And as he began to do that, uh, that began to be a routine. And night after night, he worked late, and he ended up... Um, having relationships with women that were not his wife via the internet. This thing continued to go on and on and on until Donnie began to realize that there, were actually, there was actually a successful Donnie and a secret Donnie. And Donnie began to feel shame. He began to feel the weight of sin and so he thought, I'll try to cover this guilt up. I'll volunteer at the local um, soup kitchen and I'll join uh, and, and be a part of that, that leadership team that, that's good for this particular neighborhood or I'll volunteer at my church. I'll jump on and try to be some kind of leader. I'm going to cover up this ugliness in my life. And anytime the sin started to come to the surface and, and maybe it could be dealt with and healed he quickly suppressed it by pointing his finger to blame someone else. You see, what happened in the garden is not that unfamiliar to a story to us today. And honestly, it's not that unfamiliar uh, in the scriptures in the New Testament either. So, so far as we've walked through the book of Acts, what we've seen is that the church of Jesus has been advancing the gospel mission and they've received some opposition. 
But opposition has come from the outside through persecution, through political and religious pressure. Last week, that's what we read about. Peter and John, they, uh, they were arrested and they were told, you cannot preach or teach or do anything in the name of Jesus again. So persecution and pressure had come on the church from the outside. You see, Satan is crafty. And he's going to try to stop the mission of God however he can. He came after the people of God through the leadership and the political structures that were in place from the outside. But when that didn't work, what does he do? He comes from the inside. And that's what we're going to read about today is the brokenness from within and God's desire for purity in the church. That's our message today is purity in the church. I want you to take your Bibles with me, if you will. We're going to be at the end of Acts chapter 4 and reading a good segment of chapter 5. And so I want to encourage you, I know you just got settled into your seat, but would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Uh, it's not that lengthy a passage today, so I'm going to ask you just to stand for the, for the whole reading. We'll begin in Acts 4, verse 32. So if you remember, they just finished praying. The church was persecuted. They came back together and they prayed for boldness. And the place where they were was shaken like a little earthquake. And they continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. And in verse 32, the Bible says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands... Or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land 
for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Lord, use your word this morning to show us the seriousness of our sin. To show us the grace of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're studying through the book of Acts, and today we find ourselves in chapter 5. And what we see in chapter 5 is the story of um, the brokenness inside the church and how the enemy, one of his schemes is to take the sin of the people from within and to destroy the church of Jesus from within. That's one of his plans. So in context, we look at the whole church kind of gathered and we see this beautiful, um, this, this portrait of almost euphoria or utopia where no one's in need. If someone has a need, then somebody else goes and sells some property or something. You know, they go sell their PS4 and they come back and they give him the, the money and he's able to take care of a need, you know. That's the kind of community. The story that Luke is giving us here in Acts 4 at the end is to show us this is the kind of community that God is building. And then the great contrast, the word but, begins Acts chapter 5, but it wasn't all perfect. No church is, you know. If you, if you think a church is perfect and you, you're looking for a perfect church where people are perfect, um, you won't find it because there's people there, <laughs> right? And people are broken. People are sinners. We are all, all of us in this room are broken people, amen? Yeah. If you're looking for the perfect church and you find it, don't join it, because then it'll be imperfect. <laughs> Here's the thing. Satan wants to use pressure from the outside and a lack of purity from the inside. Whatever it takes to stop the mission of God, that's Satan's agenda. Here's what I want us to see this morning. I just want to walk through a quick outline with you today. First thing is this. God builds gospel community in his church. That's what he's building here at Mountain View. He's building gospel community. And ideally, hopefully, we get to the place where the description we read at the end of Acts 4 is us. You know, that's our description. If anybody has a need, we all rally to meet that need. And it's not just physical needs. Sometimes it's emotional hurt or whatever it may be. But Galatians chapter 6 says to bear one another's burdens, right? And in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love God and love neighbor. Bear one another's burdens. And that's what we read at the end of Acts 4 is this description of a gospel community in the church. I just want to give you three quick truths here. 
The first one is this church enjoyed radical unity. Radical unity. Verse 32 says that they were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. The reality here is the church has unity from the inside out. It's not that they look the same on the outside. It's not that they like the same things. It's not that they say the same words or have the same passions even. It's that from the inside out, they are striving to be like Jesus. And they have a radical kind of unity. This is not the same as worldly unity. We've talked about this many times, so I won't belabor the point. Worldly unity is on the outside. It's about uniformity, not unity. Worldly unity doesn't say, let's, be, let's together be like Jesus. No, it finds the, the trending um, moral compass or moral leader of the day. It says, let's all be like him. Or let's all be like her. That's worldly unity. We have a greater mission. It's to be like Jesus. So this church enjoyed radical unity. And it was, as the Bible says, of one heart and one soul. Secondly, the church experienced radical generosity. This incredible unity, one of the ways that you see it fleshed out, practically speaking, is through generosity. Through radical Generosity. As we read that section of Scripture at the end of chapter 4, what you see is the Bible says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For whoever owned land or houses sold it and took the proceeds and gave it to the apostles and it was distributed as anybody had need. This is a radical kind of generosity. We were talking about this on Wednesday night and I was just thinking through like, you know, if if I see a need, if somebody has a need, maybe I'm at a gas station pumping gas and somebody comes over and says, hey man, I'm really trying to get somewhere. You think you can spot me 10 bucks in gas? You know? I would probably go, yeah, let me see what I got. You know, Whatever liquid assets I have, you know, sometimes I'm like, yeah man, I actually don't have any money, I'm sorry. Whatever, whatever I can quickly have access to and hand off, that's, that's what's available to me to give. But this kind of generosity is radical in that it said, oh, you have a need? Okay, well, I'm going to have to go sell something. Be right back. It's that kind of radical generosity that says, I'm willing to step into your need so much so that I'm going to go sell my property, my vehicle, my stuff. I'm going to go sell my things and give you the resources to meet your need. This is radical. It's a radical kind of generosity. I just want to mention something before we get into the specifics with Barnabas. Um, there are some who look at this text and they, and they see um, communism instead of community. What we see here is that God is building gospel community. But there are some who read into this text and go, well, this obviously is, is a governing communism. And it's not. I want to show you the difference. Gospel community is enjoyed. Communism is enforced. Gospel community is given with compassion. Communism is given under compulsion. Gospel community says, what's mine is yours. 
Communism says what's yours is mine. Community breeds gratitude and equality. Communism breeds greed and entitlement. All I want to say is that God is building a community where people treasure Him so highly that we hold on loosely to the things that He's given us. And what we see in Barnabas in particular is that he demonstrates this radical generosity in a crazy kind of way. So much, like he went, he went and sold, obviously, a big piece of property so much that the people are all like, wow, look at Barnabas. This is amazing. It's a testimony to the goodness of Jesus, this kind of generosity. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not even going to give you the answer. I want you to meditate on it, all right? The Bible says that the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What I want to ask you is, how does the resurrection of Jesus compel you to be generous? How does a living Christ who died, buried, and rose again Belief in that. How does that compel us as a community to be radically generous with what God has given us? I want you to think about what Jim Elliott said. Uh, Jim Elliott, missionary uh, who was killed for his faith. But this is a famous quote and I love it. Here's what he says. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This gospel community experienced radical generosity. And lastly, uh, the church is encouraged through resurrection preaching. Uh, the Bible says that the apostles continued um, giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this community experienced great power and great grace. Resurrection preaching. Resurrection preaching. The, the beauty of that is it's not just Easter. It's not just an Easter time story. The resurrection is central to our faith. It's at the center point of who we are and what we believe. If, there's, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, how do you know you will? But he did. He did raise from the dead and he lives eternally. And so will we. And so with our minds on eternity, we can hold loosely to things of earth. So this is the stage that God is building gospel community and then we look closely now at chapter 5 this contrasting picture of uh, sin in the camp that there's sin in the church among the fellowship of God's people there's sin there so secondly God brings gospel purity to his church God brings gospel purity to his church just want to walk us through four principles that come straight out of this text. 
when Ananias came in to the apostles, just so you, to make sure we know the story, Ananias presumably saw Barnabas, saw all the, uh, all the bragging, all the praise maybe that Barnabas was getting, and Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they talked about it and said, hey, you know, um, we've got some property that we could probably sell and we could bring the money to the apostles and like Barnabas, you know, maybe people will love that. And so they sold the property and, and maybe Sapphira said, well, hey, that's, that's actually a lot of money. And, you know, I'd really like to get that new mule or whatever. Uh, I'd like to upgrade our, you know, thatch roof. I don't know what I don't know what she said. You know, man, I need I need something new. You know, what if what if we just keep back? You know, half of half of it. You know, we still bring half of it and, and give half of it. We just keep fifty percent back and we'll use it. And then Anna and I said, you know what? That's, that's a good plan. I, I actually have a few things I'd I'd like to get too. And. Uh, you know, we can still get the praise that we want and our stuff. And that was sort of the plan. They came with that plan. Ananias walks in to, to Peter and he comes in with this lump, this sum of money and he presents it. And he says, hey, this is, uh, we sold some land and we want to make sure people's needs are met too, like Barnabas did. And so um, here's all the money from the sale of our land. We want it to be like radically generous. Peter looks at Ananias and he asks a really sharp question. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's interesting because up, up to this point, we haven't really had, I mean, in the book of Acts, we haven't had Satan named as an enemy. Until this point. And it's at this point that we identify the, the, the craftiness of the serpent. That he's still having those same conversations that he had in the Garden of Eden. He's still deceiving the hearts of men and, and, and telling them, hey, listen, you know, it's, it's okay. You can just do this. And you can actually have the best of both worlds. And Satan is still playing those same Games, and we find out he's still uh, the enemy of the church. So the first thing I want you to see here is that Satan is working to silence the witness of the church. Satan is working to silence the witness of the church. I hope you know that that's his mission. It's to silence you. It's to keep you from preaching and teaching and doing in the name of Jesus. And the way he chose to go about silencing Ananias was just to change one little thing. Hey, Ananias, you can still be really generous, but do it in your own name. I want to silence the witness to Jesus. Let's not make much of Jesus. Let's make much of Ananias. And Ananias fell for it. He and his wife both fell for it. You see, the enemy is about persecution from the outside and he's about persuasion on the inside. What can he do to deceive you? 
How can he trick you with some little persuasion? Let me just let you into who Satan is. 1 Peter 5 says he's a devouring lion. 2 Corinthians says he's a deceiving serpent. But that's not how he presents himself. The Bible says he presents himself as the angel of light. And we see that right here in this text, right? I mean, he's, he's totally willing for Ananias to come and be generous. Let's, let's be honest. He sold some land and he gave like a chunk of it to the church. That's generous, isn't it? But it's about the why, the motive. Why did he do it? Satan is the angel of light. Jesus said about Satan in John 8, he said he's a murderer and a liar. Jesus talked about Satan and he said when he speaks lies, he's speaking his native language. Because that's who he is. We think about Satan and we think back to the Garden of Eden. He was the serpent that started this whole mess. But I think sometimes we as Christians think that uh, we've moved past that. Like we've, we're past Satan's temptation. I don't know where we get that. That's foolish thinking. Jesus himself was tempted by Satan, right? In a strong way. Matthew chapter four, he tempts him, tempts him, tempts him. And then you know what it says after that? And Satan left him until what? Did anybody know? An opportune time. Just because that's the recorded temptation of Jesus doesn't mean it's the only temptation of Jesus. Satan was always after Jesus. What about Peter? I mean, the one who's right here in the story and Peter is saying, why has Satan filled your heart? I mean, it was just weeks earlier that Jesus was saying to his disciples, I'm going to go to the cross and die. And Peter stood up and said, no, over my dead body, you're not going to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, who? Satan. Peter knows what this is about. He knows what it means to be under the influence of the evil one. And he can see it through the lens and the power of the Holy Spirit. He can discern the working and the craftiness and the schemes of Satan. Satan is working to silence the witness of the church. And if he can't do it through outward oppression, he will do it through inward sin. Church, we've got to be on guard. You have to be on guard. Why? Because secondly, not only is Satan working, but sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. You see, back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God told them, you know, if you eat of that tree, in the day you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Yeah. You will die. And you know what? Every human being since that day, apart from Enoch, And Elisha, well, we've all died physically. All people die because of sin. Do you know that? There's all these statistics about the leading cause of death, but let me tell you, the leading cause of death is sin. And I'm not saying that necessarily you die because you sin, although. That's not a false statement. 
We all die because it's the consequence, the punishment of sin ultimately. In this case, God made that abundantly clear in the moment. Ananias and Sapphira died immediately as the judgment for their sin. God did this on purpose. I think so many times I, I hear people say things like, I just wish the church could see the miracles like we saw in the book of Acts. Really? This is miraculous. This is a sovereign, supernatural work of God. Is this what we want to see in the church? I wonder if God worked this miraculously in the church today, how many of us would fall over dead? I mean, honestly. Here's the truth we need to come away with. God executed judgment to teach us some things. One, he wanted us to know sin is not welcome in his family. Sin is not welcome. It is not okay. Secondly, he wanted the church of Jesus to fear him. Do you notice in chapter four the words um, and great power and great grace? There's those words up right around where it says the apostles continued giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. It says with great power and there's great grace. Well, the parallel down in chapter five is not great power or great grace. It's great fear. When Ananias died, the Bible says a great fear came upon every soul. When Sapphira died, the Bible says a great fear came upon all who heard him. That's God's point in judgment is to restore fear, a righteous, holy fear. That kind of fear, it, it helps keep us on track. It almost serves, in my mind, I see this illustration of like the, the bumper pads when you go bowling. I haven't been bowling in forever, but that fear is what keeps the ball on, in the lane. It's what keeps your life from getting in, in one ditch or the other. Is a righteous, holy fear of Almighty God. And through judgment, God is restoring that. Let's see it in another, in another way. We, we've, we've said Satan is working. We've said sin is deadly. Thirdly, secrets are exposed with God. This was a secret plan. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, they had contrived this plan together, whatever it looked like, whatever their decision was, they had come to a plan that, hey, here's what we're going to do. When you go in, you say these words, and then later when I go in, I'll say those exact same words. It's our, this is our plan. It'll work. Well, it's pretty foolish, actually, to try to keep secrets from God. Right? But think back to the Garden of Eden. How, how dumb is it for Adam and Eve to hide in bushes? from their creator. Like how, how dumb of us. Same, same thing. Here we have Ananias and Sapphira like, God won't hear our whispers. <laughs> it's foolishness. Secrets are exposed with God. He knows everything. You cannot hide from him. You cannot deceive him. You, you, may, or you may be able to fool people, but you will never deceive God. He will not be mocked. 
be reminded this week of the story of Joshua 7. If you want to read another story, a parallel story about this same idea, I encourage you just to pick up and read the story in Joshua chapter 7. It's a story about a man named Achan. Achan. Um, just to get it in perspective, and I'll summarize quickly, but in Joshua 6 is the famous story of Jericho. Right? The, the people of God are marching around this huge city and the trumpets blow and boom, the walls come tumbling down and the people go in and they're victorious over a massive city by the power of God. I mean, they're on a high, right? This is amazing. But God had told them, when you claim victory, don't, don't take anything. Don't, don't take anything. I know they have a lot of wealth and a lot of stuff, but don't take anything. I want you to leave it all there. Joshua 7, the very next story, is about the people of God advancing a little further, and they're going to go conquer this little bitty land named Ai. It's just literally spelled Ai. I guess that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> Ai. So they go to take over this little bitty land, and as they go, they, they get whipped so badly. They get whipped that the, the, the warriors... The Israelite warriors are running back. They're fleeing for their lives. And like 30-something are killed or slain as they flee. It's a miserable defeat. And Joshua's like, what in the world happened? I mean, God, you gave us victory over Jericho. And we can't even fight Ai. What happened? And God says, there's sin in the camp. And it's a secret. No one knows except me. I want to encourage you to read it because it's pretty tragic. Achan had decided to take a few things. No one knew he did it. He dug a hole in his tent and buried him in the tent. No one knew. And they went out thinking they were going to be victorious. And came back whipped because of his secret sin. And the truth there is that God knows all. There are no secrets with God. In this story with Ananias and Sapphira, actually, the crazy thing is God actually turns the tables on them. They think they're keeping a secret from God. But after Ananias died, three hours have passed and Sapphira doesn't even know it. She doesn't know that their secret plan has backfired and her husband is dead. The secret table has turned. If you look in verse 7, it says, after an interval of three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Not knowing what had happened, she followed her husband to the grave. Your secret sin will keep you in the dark on what God is doing. And you'll be on the wrong side of judgment. Secret sin keeps you in the dark. So what's the, what's the answer? What's the answer to this? Because I know about you, but as I read this story, I cannot, in good conscience, look at Ananias and Sapphira and judge them. Because you know what? I am them. And so are you, if you're honest. Well, the solution is this. Satisfaction is only 
in Jesus. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they were looking for something. Maybe it was the esteem of their friends or the, the glory of being super generous, the, the pride that would well up in them from selling some piece of property and giving all that money away. Maybe it was the possible promotion to some position of power. You know, hey, Sapphira, hey, if we do this, you know, Peter might make me one of his buddies. Maybe I'll get to be an apostle. The idea of some kind of elevation. See, we read this text, and if we're not careful, we think, well, you know, I better not lie. And that's true. But lying is a sinful means to a sinful ends. Lying wasn't their end game. It was just a path they chose to get there. They're after something that the world cannot give them. I want you to listen. This is so important. If you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear this. We have to stop chasing in the world what God has already given us in Christ. Listen. Stop chasing in the world what God has already given you in Jesus. We don't need any other affirmation. Don't need any other praise. Don't need any other sense of worth except for what I find in Christ. Whatever it is you're looking for, turn to Jesus. Money can't buy you love, can't buy you happiness, can't buy you anything that lasts. More stuff. It won't fulfill you. It'll just fill up your garage. Right? It won't satisfy you. True satisfaction and joy are only in Jesus. And this is where we see, like this is the bottom, and this is the root of what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. If we only look at the surface, if all we see is, well, they lied to God, you can't lie to God. Well, that's true. Why did they lie? It's because they were unsatisfied for, for whatever reason that the, the gospel of Jesus had yet to get deep into their hearts. It had yet to get a grip on everything in their heart where they understood this is all I really need. Somehow the enemy had deceived them into thinking, yeah, Jesus might be good, but he's not enough. You need more. And here's how to get it. We have to stop chasing from the world what God has given us in Christ. The truth is, our enemy is still using the same old schemes. And sadly, they're still working. We're still being so easily deceived. Gospel community is the rescue for this deadly pattern. I was sharing this with a new friend just a few moments ago. In gospel community, like where, where Jesus is treasured and there's a people that come together, where Jesus is our collective treasure and we are of one heart and soul, here's what you find. You find that people can truly know you. 
I bet nobody really knew Ananias and Sapphira. They thought they knew him. They didn't really know him. There's a lot of talk today about wear a mask or don't wear a mask. Wear a mask or don't wear a mask. And I'm not getting into that controversy. But I want to say this. Don't wear your mask. I'm not talking about N95. I'm talking about stop pretending to be somebody you're not. Gospel community is healing for that kind of deception. That kind of deception says you can't really be you because they can't be trusted. In a place where God has built gospel community, where he's our supreme treasure, where we are of one heart and soul, you can trust each other. You can be vulnerable enough to be known by those around you, to take off the mask and let people see who you really are. Because in gospel community, people truly love you. They truly know you. And they truly love you. That's really what we're all after. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were probably after. Hey, if we sell all this stuff and we give all this away, people will love us. No, they'll love the pretend you. The pretend you that you just keep on propping up. The real one is still hiding in the bushes. But you keep covering up, keep covering up, keep covering up. Maybe they'll love that person, but you will not be loved because that's not you. When you let it all go, when you take off the mask and you be who you are, you could discover in gospel community that people can truly and will truly love you with the love of Jesus. Thirdly, people can truly pray for you. If, if we don't know your hurts and your brokenness and your difficulties, we, we can't pray for you, can't lift you up to Jesus. Lastly, people can truly help you. What we see in this passage about community is this kind of generosity that's radical. If the people of God know you have a genuine need, this community will step into it and will help you. We should. We want to. But we have to know it's there, right? So until you take off the mask... People can't really know you, they can't really love you, they can't really pray for you, and they can't really help you. But when you, when you are fully known, all of those things are true. So two quick takeaways for us today. First, let's push away every false kind of unity. Everything the world wants to offer that they think, this is the way you're unified. You know, you need to link up with people who have the same skin color or the same political affiliation, affiliation or the same whatever. Garbage. All of that is shifting sand. We link arms with each other because we love the same Jesus. We have the same Savior. And all that other stuff, all that other stuff is nothing. Let's push all that away and press into a true kind of unity. 
the community that comes through the gospel. And then secondly, let's be on our guard against the crafty schemes of Satan. He is still after us. And if he can't stop you from the outside, he'll stop you from the inside. You must be on your guard. Peter, who we're reading about in this story, he writes to us and he says, be vigilant, be sober-minded, be alert, for your enemy roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. That's what he's after. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. We've got to be alert. We've got to be on our guard. But you're not alone in your fight. You don't have to fight by yourself. You can confess your struggles to God and be forgiven. You confess your struggles to one another and find healing and victory over it. Let's do this together. Let's fight common enemy together. For the glory of our King. Amen? Amen. Alright. I love you, church. I want to pray for you and pray with you. Musicians are going to come and sing. We're going to just sing another song. If you want to just pray, maybe this is the time where you want to come here to this prayer station and you just want to get on your knees and um, stop hiding. Maybe you want to take off the mask with God and just say, you know what, I, I know, I've seen in the scriptures that I can't keep any secrets from you. I can, I can let it all out and, and I can trust you. I'm going to start here on my knees. And then I'm going to try to lean into that same vulnerability with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to trust you, Lord. Let it out. Confess it to God. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to go to war against the enemy. You just need to acknowledge, this is my struggle. This is my sin. The enemy's got his grip on me right here. And I'm just going to call it what it is and repent of it today. Christ and to be completely satisfied in our Savior.